And I'd like to uh, ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to page 1706, 1706, and that's uh, Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, and we're going to read, like I said, about the uh, conversion of, of Saul, who later became the Apostle Paul, and I'll just say right up front, I'm going to mix up that name all day. Um, I'm going to call Saul Paul and probably vice versa, so I'll just beg your forgiveness right now. Um, please don't hold me too tightly to that. <clears throat> but this is an incredible story, and, um, and it's a conversion that leads to, to the evangelizing of the nations. And so what we have here is just incredibly important in the, um, in the life of the church, and so it's good that we're all familiar with, uh, with what happens in Acts chapter 9. So we'll read the first 20 verses this morning. And again, I'd like to encourage you just to keep your Bibles open uh, this morning as we, uh, as we walk through the message as well. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now, get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask him for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up 
and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, in Jesus Christ, <clears throat> you really can't read the book of Acts without realizing that it's a, it's a story about conversion. Saul is converted here in chapter 9. Uh, the Ethiopian official is converted in the chapter before this. Uh, the centurion Cornelius is, uh, is converted in chapters 10 and 11. We'll look at that next week. The Philippian jailer is converted. In fact, Acts tells us that all the Gentiles who were entering into the church were doing so via conversion. They were all converted. Now, it doesn't take much more than adding up 2 plus 2 to figure out that to be a part of the church of Jesus Christ, you must be converted. You must be converted. But what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to be converted? Well, the short answer is this. You have to be converted from something to something else. You turn from something, you turn to something else. We turn from sin and from self-salvation and self-serving and we turn to Christ and we turn to his salvation and serving him. Okay, I can say that just one more time. We turn from sin and from self-saving and from self-serving. And we turn to Christ and to his salvation and to serving him. Now, if you didn't get that all written down, that's okay because hopefully it'll come out in the rest of the message as we look at this story of, of Saul and also Ananias. Okay, but we're going to begin with Saul this morning. And the first thing that I'd like you to see here is, is that Saul is fanatical in his persecution of the church. That's who Saul is. He's a fanatic. Saul believes that, that he is on a mission from God. And his mission is to destroy the church of Jesus, the way. Okay, Jesus called himself the way, the truth, and the life, right? Those who are following him must have picked up that name or called themselves the way. Paul is out to destroy them, to get rid of them. Now, that phrase, mission from God, he was on a mission from God, always reminds me of a film that I saw way back in high school. Um, still has sort of a cult following today, The Blues Brothers, right? Um, it was a film John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd starred in, and they repeat over and over again in that film, we're on a mission from God. Anyone who will listen, we're on a mission from God. And if you ever see the film, they were quite fanatical about that. And that's why just about, I've never seen so many cars destroyed in one film, all, you know, for the good of their mission. But that's the way people are when they believe that they're on a mission from God. They get fanatical about that. And Paul, or Saul, was fanatical about his mission. 
this mission that he believed came from God. We see it right away in verse 1, right? What do we read there? Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Still, in other words, he's been doing this and his passion is not waning and he feels like the best way to stamp out the church is to lock people up in prison, to make them suffer, even to put them to death. That's a sign of a fanatic. And then in verse 2, we're told that he was actually traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus to find more people there to take back to Jerusalem and lock them up or put them to death, put them to trial and probably to death. Now, if you're thinking about, well, how far was that? Going to Damascus from Jerusalem, that's like hiking from Milwaukee to Sturgeon Bay just to find more people to bring back to Jerusalem and put them to trial, I would say that's a bit fanatical. Some of you I know bike from here to Sturgeon Bay, but now think about walking that and then taking prisoners back with you. That's a fanatic. It was on the way to Damascus that Paul or Saul was converted What's the story? Well, the story is that Jesus appears to Saul. Jesus appears to Saul in person. This isn't a virtual appearance. He appears in person. If you look at verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. In other words, in this appearing of Jesus is actually the appearing of God himself. This is God appearing to Saul. Light throughout the Old Testament is always a, a symbol for God's glory and his goodness and his truth. And it shines through whenever God makes an appearance. And this flashing light is really a description of, of lightning, which also, also um, always accompanies the appearances of God, right? Think of Moses. Think of Elijah on Mount Sinai, the thunder and the lightning. What we're being told here is that this is an appearance of God, and he comes to us in the person of Jesus. Friends, any time you meet Jesus, you are meeting God. It's a theophany. It's an appearance of God himself. And friends, every conversion, every conversion that happens begins this way. It begins with God coming to us in the person of Jesus. That's what Jesus does. He reveals God to us in undeniable fashion. And it doesn't always have to happen it doesn't always have to be sudden-like, like it is here on the road to Damascus. It can be slow and steady that Jesus confronts us with God. It can be slow and steady like growing up in a Christian family and having mom or dad read you stories about Jesus when you're heading off to sleep. That's Jesus bringing God to you. Every time we encounter the name of Jesus, he brings God to us. And therefore, Jesus always comes with a decision. You either have to deny him or join him. 
deny him or join him. Even if you hear Jesus' name, you know, used as a swear word in the hallway at school or, or in the office or on the construction site, when you hear that name Jesus, you are being confronted with the person of God and a decision. Am I with him or am I not? Is he God or is he an imposter? Jesus always brings God to us, sometimes forcefully, like he does here with, with Saul, sometimes very gently, like he did with me, maybe like he did with you, just coming again and again, over and over, giving you more reasons to believe. But Jesus not only appears to Saul, he also speaks, doesn't he? In verse, uh, verse 4, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Now, I want to break that, that phrase down for us just a moment. Because I think we tend to breeze over it. Especially in the church today, we, we sort of assume that when Jesus says, why do you persecute me? He says that because Saul is persecuting the church. And we understand, if we're, if we're believers, if we're Christians, we understand that, that Jesus has associated himself so closely with his people, with his church, that to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus himself. Okay? And in fact, there is something wonderful in that notion. It's a true notion that to persecute his church is to persecute Jesus himself. Jesus does unite himself with us. And in fact, when are we most united with Christ? It's when we are being persecuted. That's when we feel ultimately that oneness with Christ like you can in no other way. But but getting back again, that's sort of a secondary sort of association where Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? We assume, well, it's because he's persecuting the church. But I think there's a, a more primary understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says that Saul is persecuting him. Saul is persecuting Jesus himself. He's fighting with Jesus. He's injuring Jesus. How is that happening? How is Saul injuring Jesus? In fact, Saul doesn't even understand it. He says... He says, Lord, who are you? Is it true that Saul is actually persecuting Jesus? And if so, how is that true? Well, for Saul to admit that God actually had to come down into this world in the person of Jesus Christ, if Saul was going to be saved... In other words, to bring salvation to Saul. If God had to come down in the person of Jesus to do that and to die for Saul, what that meant is that Saul's entire view of himself and of salvation was upside down wrong. Flat out wrong. You see, Saul believes that God has already accepted him. Saul believes that, that he is loved by God, that he's a friend of God. In fact, he's on a mission for God, right? Why does he believe that? Why does Saul believe that? He believes it because he's a law keeper. In the eyes of his own people and his own religion, he is a good man. He is a friend of God. 
We read about that in Philippians. He lists his whole, his whole resume, excuse me, about why he's such a good man. Natalie and Ty read it for us in our, in our call to worship this morning. That was Paul's mindset. Actually, God owes me. I've been such a good man for God that he owes me salvation. And now, Jesus comes to him and says, No, Saul, you're a sinner. And you need to be converted. You need to turn from self-salvation to my salvation. Friends, Saul was a persecutor of God. Later he calls himself and all of us enemies of God. Why? Because we push God away. We think we can save ourselves. We can depend on our own goodness. We can depend on our own religiosity. And so we fight with God. We push him away. We don't need him. We don't want him. Because if we did, it would also mean that we need to serve him. If Jesus is the only way to salvation, then we ought to really give him our lives in service. But we don't want to do that either. We're much better off serving ourselves, doing life our own way. And in that way, friends, we are the enemies of God. Saul doesn't need help. Saul doesn't need assurance. He's got salvation. He doesn't need Jesus. And that's why Saul needs conversion. He needs to be converted. What is conversion? It's turning from something to something. It's turning from self-salvation to salvation in Jesus. Friends, as long as we are into self-salvation, all of us, all of us, we're not just lost, we're not just misguided, we're enemies of God, all of us. We're hostile to him, we're fighting with him, we're persecutors of him. That's why Jesus says, why do you persecute me, Saul? Why are you fighting this? Conversion is turning from self-salvation. It's also turning from self-serving. It's also turning from self-serving. What's the very first thing that Jesus says to Paul or to Saul? Verse 6, Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. What you must do. When we turn from self-salvation and self-serving, we turn to serving Jesus Christ. Conversion is not just about getting a ticket to heaven. Conversion is about all of my time and energy being spent on myself to all of my time and energy and love and devotion being spent on Jesus. You will be told what you must do. What is he called to do? He's called to be a missionary to the nations, to the Gentiles. We heard last week from, from Kurt Sellis that ever since Genesis chapter 12, 
right? God has a plan for the saving of all the peoples of the world, all the nations, right? He's going to call all the nations back to himself. That's God's mission. That's what Jesus is about. And here in chapter 9, Jesus himself calls Saul to lead that mission. You will be told what you must do, Saul. It's not your time to just go sit and revel in the fact that God loves you and God saved you. I've got something for you to do. Conversion from serving yourself to serving Christ and to serving his mission in this world. That's the conversion of Saul. Now, I just want to pause here and mark something with you for a moment let's just think about Saul okay he's a fanatic he's on a mission from God but he's going in the complete and opposite direction that he's supposed to be ask yourself was there ever a less likely candidate for conversion than the person of Saul the answer would probably be no I mean Saul was pictured by no one at this time as, oh, yeah, he's going to be the great missionary for Jesus Christ. No way. And what we need to learn from this, or at least one thing we need to learn from this, is, friends, we have to resist putting the people that we encounter in life into categories. Into categories of, like, well... This is a person who's very likely to love Jesus someday. This is a a person who's very likely to be saved, to be converted. And this is a person who's very unlikely to be converted. We really have to resist that temptation, friends. Because the truth is that everyone, everyone is a potential Christian. No one is is a more likely candidate for conversion than anyone else. Your neighbor who seems, you know, really, really nice and doesn't bother you in any way is no less likely or no more likely a candidate for conversion than the the one who's up at six in the morning cutting his lawn and waking up your whole household. Both of them are just as great a candidate for salvation. It doesn't matter. We shouldn't have these categories in our minds like they'll never believe or boy, they could really be believers. I like them. It's not the way conversion works. Conversion is always a miracle. It's always a miracle. Whether it's the conversion of your children or the conversion of of the most unlikely person you could ever believe would be a Christian. There is no one that we should not pray for. There is no one that we should not hope for. Everyone is a potential Christian. Now, with that said, I also want to state a caveat here. Okay? Just a caveat. This doesn't mean, and I say this because I hear this kind of thing, this doesn't mean that young people or young adults, you run to mom and dad someday and say, I want to marry this person, and they're not a Christian, but they're a potential Christian. They're a potential for conversion, and the pastor said that anybody can be converted, and so I want to marry this person. And I just want to get that out there. That's, that's not what the Bible says in other places. In fact, in other places, the Bible says, yes, everybody can be converted, but, but marrying someone is probably not the best method for that to happen. In fact, it doesn't work very often. 
And then the argument comes back, but it happens sometimes. I know my sister and this happened, and, and that is very true. I'll grant you that. Sometimes marriage is the vehicle to conversion of someone else. But I would also say this. Sometimes people survive going over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Would I do it? No. Okay? Because it's not very likely. And I don't want to make fun of this, okay, because I want to stress everyone. Everyone is a potential Christian. At the same time, there are some methods that are not very effective. And, and, and one of the primary issues with, with that kind of thing going on in a marriage is when we are not converted, we are still enemies of God. And while we are still enemies of God, we're not into serving him, we're into serving ourselves. And when you have a marriage with one person who's converted and one who's not, what you have is people going in two different directions because one person wants to serve Jesus Christ and follow him with everything they have, serve his mission to the world, and you have another person who is into serving themselves. And it's no fault of their own, that's... That's who we are. That's who we're born to be in a sinful world. We are born to serve ourselves. And so you have two people going in two different directions, which, friends, is not a good situation for a marriage. And so, going back, what's conversion? It's converted to being saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And it's being converted to serving God's mission in Jesus Christ. Serving God's mission. Now, we're going to end up, or we're going to wrap this up soon. But my question is, who then is our picture in Acts 9 of a converted church? Who is our conviction of a, con or our picture of a converted church? And the answer here is Ananias. Ananias is a wonderful figure, friends, and he sometimes gets overshadowed in Acts 9 by Saul, and well, well, it should, but we cannot forget Ananias. Let's think about Ananias' conversion. Is he really converted? And the question becomes, you know, how do we know that a church is full of converted people, converted Christians? Look at verse 11. Jesus doesn't just come to Saul in this text, he comes to Ananias. And in verse 11, what does he say? Go. Just like he says to Paul, you're going to do something, he says to Ananias, go. Where is he supposed to go? He's supposed to go to Saul. This is a test of whether or not Ananias is really converted. And, and the first, first doesn't look so good because in verse 13 he says, but, but Saul's a murderer. <laughs> I'm afraid of this guy, okay? I'm afraid of him. I don't want to go to this guy. That's natural. What does Jesus say in verse 15? Go. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to bring the gospel and so on and so forth. The question here is, does Ananias truly understand conversion and does he truly understand grace? Because a converted Ananias 
will understand that just as Saul is an enemy of Jesus Christ, I was an enemy of Jesus Christ. I was a persecutor of Jesus Christ until Jesus came to me and changed me. That's who I was. If Ananias understands grace, he will understand that conversion can happen to anyone. Conversion can even happen to a man like Saul. And how do we know that Ananias gets it? That even though it took a little bit, he gets it. He understands grace. He understands conversion. How do we know? Because in verse 17, Ananias went. He went. He's not into self-salvation. He's not into self-preservation. He's into serving Jesus. And he goes. And what happens? He lays his hands on Saul and he calls him brother. Brother. There is not a sweeter word in Scripture coming out of the church than that word, brother. Um, We went to a a little gathering this week in support of uh, Partners in Hope Community Warehouse. And uh, Partners in Hope in particular wants to work with people who are coming out of the prison system and trying to help them get established in life again and, and also build relationships with the church. Partners in Hope is a dinner where, you know, um, ex-convicts can come and, and they can find community in, in Christ. And the man who gave his testimony that night, um, I, I think he was in prison already at the age of like 16 or 17 for killing someone, and it was someone in his own family that he had put to death. And he's just recently been released, <clears throat> and um, he said the main fear on his part being released was going back to his community, back to his family. And the question was, will I be accepted? Will I be loved? Will I be forgiven? And friends, don't think that Saul didn't have those exact same questions in his heart and on his mind. And he got back to Ananias and what does he say? Brother. Brother. You're no greater a persecutor of Jesus than I was. You're my brother, and you are accepted here. And from what I understand, that's the message of the folks at Partners in Hope as well. Brother, you're, you're one of us. You belong here. What happens when the church is not truly converted? What would have happened here if Ananias really wasn't converted, if he really didn't get grace, if he didn't really understand his own conversion? I would assert that what happens then is the church begins to major in minors. And we forget all about the fact that we are servants of Jesus Christ and on a mission for him. We major in minors. There was a film that, that came out a few years ago. It's called Jesus Revolution. Maybe some of you saw it. Um, it's a story about uh, 
Pastor Chuck Smith, who back in the 60s and 70s in California, began ministering to the hippies, to the hippie generation, right? And he was a pastor of kind of a, at least how it's presented, kind of a staid, you know, mainline church, kind of a dying church, had a few people left, and he started inviting in the hippies. And there were people who were clearly searching, right? They had been searching drugs and sex and whatever they could find to find the meaning of life, and, and he saw that maybe deeper than all of that, they were searching for Jesus. And so he started inviting them into the church. And uh, they showed scenes of, of worship. And all the hippies would be on this side and all the members of the church would be sitting over here and they would kind of look over there and scowl at all these new people. And one of the things, uh, one of the members went and said to the pastor, and this was on behalf of the church council, he said, all these hippies, they come to church barefoot. Their feet are dirty. They're going to stain the carpet. Majoring in, in minors, right? So what did Chuck Smith do? Well, you see a picture the next Sunday. Everybody who's coming into church has to get in this line. The hippies, whoever, they can't get into church unless they're in a line. And you don't see what's happening at the front of the line. And then they show a shot of, of Pastor Smith. And he's, he's down on his knees on the ground with a bowl of water. And before you can get into the church, he has to wash your feet. Does that remind you of anyone? Someone who majored in majors? Remember Jesus who, who said to his top disciple, Mr. Head Disciple at the time, Peter. He said, Peter, unless, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. And that's true for all of us. Unless he washes us, we have no part with him. doesn't matter if we're good people, nice people, have good jobs, wear nice clothes. Doesn't matter if we're not nice people. Wear lousy clothes. If he doesn't wash us, we have no part with him. But then he goes on. And he says, but if I wash you, you are clean. You are clean. And you are as much a part of my church as anyone else. And friends, people who have been converted, we get that. And we live it. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, keep on teaching us about grace. There's not one person here who is saved by any other means than by grace. And those people who have been saved by grace, well, we're out to serve our Savior. 
Whatever he has called us to do, the mission to the Gentiles, the mission to the Jews, the mission to all the nations of the world, that's what we are about, about bringing your grace to more people so that you may bring them to conversion, that they may leave an old life behind and turn to something new. Lord, never stop teaching us about grace. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen.